Since 1979, Central City Concern has been on the front lines serving Portlanders struggling with homelessness, mental health, and or drug addiction issues. They're actually one of our city's largest nonprofits providing this type of health care and case management. So today on CityCast Portland, we're talking with Andy Mendenhall, their previous chief medical officer and current CEO, about how he thinks we should go about addressing our city's ongoing housing, mental health, and addiction crises. And he has some good and bad news to share about how Portland is progressing on some of these issues. It's Wednesday, January 31st. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. So I know Central City Concern is a massive nonprofit, but for listeners who don't know uh, what kinds of resources and programs are run by Central City, could you just explain a little bit of what it is? Sure thing. So we are a company nonprofit organization that has been around for 44 going on 45 years, and we provide housing and healthcare and employment services to vulnerable members of our community. Everything from step in right off the street to folks that are placed through what we would refer to as the housing continuum of care and live with us for decades. One of the most important aspects of the housing services that Central City provides, and we call it part of our golden thread, about three quarters of the folks that step into service with us step in from a medical withdrawal management episode at Hooper Detox Center, and then they step into supportive recovery housing, which is a transitional program of anywhere between about nine to 15 months. Um, Many of the other folks that we serve, we serve in our federally qualified health center system. We have over 29 different programs, everything from primary care and our two big primary care centers are Old Town Clinic down in the downtown area. And we also have the Blackburn Center out at 122nd and Burnside. We also serve folks with severe pervasive mental illness, different types of substance use disorder services, outpatient and residential services. And then we've got this amazing team of folks that help people get jobs, keep jobs, find the right job for them. So that was a long answer to your really important question. So why do we have any issues in the city then? <laughs> it seems like <laughs> you guys are doing it all. I mean, if you're if you're housing uh, people with mental health, you know, illnesses and addiction, I mean, from your perspective then, like how do you see our current mental health addiction and housing policies working against each other in Portland? What we would say is, yes, we're part of the solution. And at CCC, we say we know what to do. We just need to do a lot more of it. So the primary driver for the challenges that we see in our community is, first and foremost, we don't have enough housing resources. And in particular, we don't have enough deeply affordable and supportive housing resources for folks that are really struggling, struggling with behavioral health challenges, struggling with substance use disorder. Um, And most importantly, the fastest growing segment of people that are struggling with houselessness are actually folks over the age of 60 who typically don't have either of those circumstances, but they're medically vulnerable. And um, oftentimes they they lose a job, they lose their ability to earn income because of medical disability. And unfortunately, there has historically been um, an underfocus on the shelter resources that are needed, mm. both shelter and shelter alternative. So that is why we have, um, depending on which source you read, the highest or close to the highest unsheltered per capita population 
um, in the United States, in our region. And we're hoping to see that change. Yeah, I haven't heard that stat before. That's crazy. Um, I know that we have some of the lowest uh, outpatient services for mental health and also for uh, addiction, which was why it was interesting that uh, Measure 110 came about and there wasn't much support in the outpatient services. Like, what impact do you think that Measure 110 had or, you know, if it had any on all of this, you know, on uh, our issues right now with the homeless population? First and foremost, um, Measure 110's primary benefit is that it created a funding resource to provide additional services and support for folks with substance use disorder across the state. Um, To the earlier part of your question, um, Oregon has been under-resourced in terms of outpatient and residential substance use disorder services for many years. We've also not had enough behavioral health. When I refer to that, I mean services to meet the needs of folks with uh, psychiatric illness um, as well. And so we started there as a baseline. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible baseline. Agreed. Totally agree. Um, and, you know, the origin story of that goes back to um, almost 20 years ago um, when there the opportunity to bring physical health and behavioral health together and fund it all together as, if you will, whole human care, right? But aspects of the health insurance industry um, chose to keep more of the funding in the physical health world, and that resulted in an, a chronic underfunding of the behavioral health world um, in our state. And, and so you take that as a foundation place, um, a lot of folks, unfortunately, then say, oh, okay, well, gosh, Measure 110 passed, and, and that's the origin story of all of our problems. And so, Exactly. Yeah, that's what we're hearing. Yeah, and, it, and, and it's just that's not a, a wholly accurate uh, narrative because um, we have to remember that we had a pandemic and, and actually Measure 110 passed during that time period, implementation phase. Um, was delayed um, in that early phase of the pandemic as well. Um, But the entire industry um, of substance use disorder and behavioral health services had to transform uh, between, you know, March of 2020 and um, January of 2022. And then, oh, by the way, in uh, the summertime of 2021, we saw a new methamphetamine product um, show up. And then in the fall of 2021, Uh, We saw the opioid supply in our community almost completely convert from um, black tar heroin that had been laced with fentanyl to um, pressed fentanyl pills and fentanyl powder during that time period. So it's just the perfect storm. But I mean, do you think Measure 110 did anything to help in, in that capacity or did it just aid even more confusion? I think ultimately Measure 110 has definitely been more helpful than it has been harmful to our communities and our public um, situation because um, of the funding and the services that have come in. Now, there are folks that will, you know, vehemently disagree with that, but that has more to do with the public perception of public use of substances of predominantly the unsheltered population. If folks had a place to live, if folks had a place to be, Um, That wouldn't be in the public eye. The problem would still exist unequivocally, but the visibility, right, the visibility and the impairment that the general population have seen um, make it easy for people to just affiliate or associate one with the other. Mm -hmm. Um, In the meantime, CCC, Central City Concern, is really proud to have been co-sponsoring work in partnership with Health Share of Oregon and Care Oregon 
looking at um, the Medicaid population, so that's folks with the public health benefit in this region, and we learned a lot about the acuity trend of folks with um, substance use disorder and then also folks with severe pervasive mental illness, specifically psychosis. And what we learned was that the growth of those groups of folks with those conditions um, did not outpace the natural growth of folks that were enrolled in Medicaid during that time. But what we can definitely say, and I, I can say this as a person um, working as a doctor treating these individuals, is that the average person with an opioid use disorder or the average person with a stimulant use disorder, unfortunately, um, they got a lot more ill and they needed a higher level of care and a higher level of services. And so you take a group of people who already had a hard time accessing the previous set of services. And now there's a bigger difference, a bigger gap between what people need and what they actually have access to. And that's contributed to um, more of the problems in our community on top of not enough shelter, not enough housing. You know, we know that it takes um, time and connection and a lot of care and love and support uh, for folks to um, have the opportunity to stabilize and then mm -hmm. really get a solid recovery going on. Um, again, we continue to see, I don't want any listener to, to think that folks aren't being successful. We're seeing um, about 42 to 45% of the folks that start that cycle, that golden thread I described earlier, um, successfully complete our programming. And we're predominantly treating people with fentanyl use disorder or uh, meth use disorder or both. Right. So, yeah. you know, when close to one out of two people are still succeeding and those numbers have come down about 15 percent, um, I want folks to know that, that we still have services that are working. We just need a lot more services for, for folks in the community than than exist right now. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, why Oregon in particular has some of the worst mental health and addiction outpatient services. Why do you think our region has some of the worst mental health and addiction resources? Because I know you stated, hey, 20 years ago, the Oregon state basically decided to bifurcate this, uh, the way we approach health uh, care, basically saying, okay, physical health, mental health, two different things. But I mean, we could go further. We could go even back to the 80s uh, as to <laughs> why we're seeing a lot of this when uh, Reagan closed shop for a lot of mental health services. But we have a huge pot of money in a sense in a sense that we we get so much money from taxpayers, from uh grants, all this stuff. How can we have that much money and then also have the worst care? I'm just talking about nationally speaking. It's a good question. So, you know, I would say our per capita um healthcare spending with the Medicaid population is average to above average compared to other states. So on a you know per capita basis, um, the spending is um, not inordinately out of balance. Now, relative to your commentary, the, the movement to deinstitutionalize that really began in the late 1970s, um, which you know, related to the reduction in funding for large institutions and a movement to community-based health for folks with severe pervasive mental illness is something that kind of happened in, it, it happened in one phase where the money went away for large state-run behavioral health hospitals and, and other types of treatment programs. 
Um, and the belief was that, okay, we'll get folks deinstitutionalized, we'll get folks out into the community. And unfortunately, the, the community resource dollars really never materialized. Now in Oregon, what we know is that uh, for the last 15 years or so, the number of folks that have needed at least a multi-month episode of treatment in an institutional setting for severe mental illness um, has gone up over time. And, and that part of that increase has, has related to just natural population growth. Unfortunately, we know that about one person in a thousand has um, a risk for developing a severe pervasive mental illness. And that's, that's just part of the human condition that happens in, in just about every part of the world. Unfortunately, about four years ago, um, the Oregon State Hospital um, ceased to admit individuals who were civilly committed. And a civil commitment is not a criminal proceeding. A civil commitment is when um, there's clinical opinion that somebody has lost the capacity to care for themselves. So all of those high acuity folks who needed and would benefit from that type of institutional stay have been pressed out into the community, right? Some of those are individuals that um, are now spending extended periods of time in our local hospitals. Some of those are individuals who are unfortunately outside. Some of those are individuals who do receive access to a housing benefit, but aren't able to actually retain or benefit uh, because the primary driver, their severe mental illness is not being um, treated the way that those individuals deserve. Um, so that's contributing to what people see um, out on the streets. When we sprinkle in, unfortunately, um, substance use disorder, that becomes an even more complicated conversation because um, under Oregon statute at present, um, it's not possible to civilly commit somebody with a severe pervasive mental illness if they also have evidence of concurrent substance use. So those folks, unfortunately, end up um, falling through the cracks. Yeah. So you're saying that health-wise, cost-wise, Oregon seems like, oh, we're spending just as much as every other state. But since like 2013, we are spending more and more and more on healthcare every year than the rest of the country. So something's not balancing out. And I'm just wondering, like, is it because we started with so little or is it because we keep like switching lanes on how we're going to tackle this issue? It's a great question. Um, so it's a little bit of both. Uh, Oregon had created some really significant efficiency in their healthcare delivery. And as a result of that efficiency that was created back in the 1990s and the early 2000s, um, that most likely resulted in an imbalance that we're now catching up for, right? Yeah. Some of that efficiency was under investment as well. The West Coast and the Pacific Northwest is an expensive place to live. And so just costs of services are, um, are much higher here than they are in other parts of the country where cost of living and wages are are lower. And you're absolutely right. That trend line has, has exceeded the national average in terms of growth. So that's an accurate statement unequivocally. And then the other part of the equation, I think, um, is relevant to our population health data. The Medicaid population of this region, at least the 90% of the Medicaid adults that are being served by the HealthShare CCO, um, that about 10% have these high acuity conditions that we've been talking about. Yeah. And they're driving 38% of the total cost. We're paying for the complications of untreated behavioral health conditions. And so um, that more of that data and more of that story will be unpacked over the course of um, calendar year 2024. And it's an important part of the narrative. What I feel good about is now that there's actually clarity in terms of um, 
how expensive this population is from the perspective of paying for complications and not outcomes. And, and let me just pause you right there. When you're yeah. saying complications, we're also talking about houselessness. Houselessness is unequivocally driving those costs as well, yeah. right? We're seeing a, a very clear indicator that people that have housing instability or are clearly unhoused um, use the hospital a ton more. They get admitted yeah. to the hospital for physical health and behavioral health reasons a lot more. I just wanted to make sure there was that connection of how this all feeds back into, you know, our housing issues. Because we've spoken to so many different community members on our show about this ongoing housing crisis, like politicians, journalists, activists, policy writers, and everyone seems to have like a different opinion on on what's causing what or how to get people the help they need. Um, and either they see it through, well, it's just like a medical issue or, you know, health issue or, or it's a drug issue or whatever. Um, and a few months ago, we had a guest by the name of Morgan Godvin, who's a drug and justice policy expert. And they themselves were incarcerated at one point because of their addiction. Uh, and Morgan had a strong point saying that we shouldn't be conflating our opioid addiction rates with our housing crisis and that the best way to get people off of the streets was to basically stop evictions and then provide actual affordable housing options full stop. And the example they had was that in all the years that they and their friends spent addicted to heroin, they were never homeless because 10 or 15 years ago, Portland was still, you know, affordable housing wise. But we've also heard from houseless advocates like Scott Kerman, the executive director of Blanchet House, basically saying that permanent housing wouldn't be the best first step for those struggling with severe mental health issues or drug addiction. Um, so what do you think? What's the missing piece in addressing this ongoing mental health addiction and housing crisis? Because you keep talking about the golden thread and I get it, but it's like, well, if you get it, why isn't anyone else getting it? Folks can't agree in, in terms of where we're going to start and where we're going to put the prioritization of the spending, right? So mm -hmm. Morgan is absolutely accurate with respect to this predominantly being um, a housing and housing affordability issue. We would still have substance use disorder. There would still be a need to treat folks. There would still, unfortunately, be people who pass away as a result of untreated substance use disorder. Um, but we unequivocally support what's referred to as a housing first um, approach because we know, to your earlier point, and I appreciate you bringing us back to it, when we get people housed, um, their utilization of healthcare services goes way down and you end up investing in the housing in order to save both lives improve the quality of life and also save a bunch of money in terms of healthcare. And, mm -hmm. you know, Scott's right that there is a segment of folks that are so, unfortunately, they're so severely ill um, that placing that person in a house or a housing unit rather, and expecting that they're going to be able to navigate through a system that's going to allow them to be a safe neighbor to other people, allow them to be successful in retaining that housing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, is also a challenge. So we need a balanced approach to building more shelter, creating more behavioral health resources at all levels of service, up to and including hospital and institutional type settings. Right. And we need to build a ton of deeply affordable housing to help people that struggle a little bit, need a little bit more help in order to stay balanced, stay stable. Sometimes that's staying in recovery. Sometimes that's also um, for folks with severe mental illness, making sure they're taking their medicine, right? Yeah. It's a really important yeah. part of success. Oh, it's my brother is schizophrenic and that is the ongoing struggle. Is the, I'm sorry to hear that. It's just nonstop, cannot take medicine. Um, 
that's that's always going to be that struggle. I'm just curious, just to talk about Medicaid just real quick. I know that um, something awesome happened with Medicaid where they're thinking about all the things that we're talking about. And so people with Medicaid are now allowed to use that for for housing. Yeah, it's not active yet. Yeah. But it will be. Yeah. So that's going to be great. So, I mean, that's I feel like that's a big win. Um, but I'm, I'm curious when the city, when the state decides, OK, this is how we're going to move forward. Do they consult with experts as such as yourself? And is it like a committee? Like, how are these decisions getting made? Um, if I could, the Medicaid 1115 waiver gives states the opportunity to use Medicaid dollars in different ways. And our state had the foresight to apply to deploy funding to support housing and health-related service needs that otherwise aren't funded in more traditional ways. Mm -hmm. Central City Concern had been involved in a pilot on some of that work um, back in 2022 and 2023, and that was really meaningful work and important work. And the plan for deployment of those funds across the state of Oregon is scheduled to go live in November of 2024. So that's exciting in and of itself. Um, And what I would say is I'm really encouraged to see um, the type of engagement and consultation that's happening between um, our state coordinated care agencies Mm -hmm. and the Oregon Health Authority. And... um, state, city, regional government um, on a variety of different levels. So there is a level of communication and consultation. And I'm proud that CCC has been um, sitting at many different tables um, to help inform decision-making and advance strategy. That's an important part of the process. um, And that's part of the complexity of this challenge. Well, Andy, I'm glad that you're the person who's dealing with that and not me, because I'm already tired. This was so much, and you're holding this in your head pretty much all day, every day. Thanks, Claudia. It's always a joy to be able to talk openly about these different things. Um, Like I say, these are complex problems, but sometimes people think that they're more complicated than they really are. Mm. Um, And and what's super challenging, I think, right now is just to acknowledge that there's a level of um, compassion fatigue and exhaustion, I think, for many folks, right, who who struggle to say, you know, why is this person who's clearly suffering not getting the services that they need at one end of the spectrum, potentially making me or my family members feel unsafe in, in a community where, um, you know, I think people pride themselves in living here and um, people pay a lot of taxes, right? And there's a, a high degree of livability. Um, we might have debated that last week, um, but, you know. And he's <laughs> uh, 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 talking about the, the, the our epic storm and what, you know. The response to that, yes, <laughs> which was a real, which was a real challenge, right? Yeah, that's a good word for and it. And speaking yeah. speaking to this topic and having volunteered about twenty hours in a, one of the the warming shelters, I can tell you that that you know the need for additional shelter resources, um, ongoing day day to day shelter resources, and other supportive services for our unsheltered members of our community continues to be a, a priority that that we just can't ignore. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Andy, and thank you for. Uh, the work that you do and uh, for spending a little time with us, breaking it all down. Claudia, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend, rate or leave us a review. It really does help us out. 
We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's.